0: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcasts. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Dave Snowden. He is the Chief Scientific Scientific Officer of, uh, oh man, I've already forgotten how to pronounce it, Kinefin? Kinevin. Kinevin. And uh, he's been a head of knowledge management for 30 years, uh, and I just signed on as a, at a, as a role at Invisible uh, Technology Companies as the director of knowledge management. So I'm really excited to uh, understand more about where this field has been. It seems like you've been there since the beginning, because when did when did head of knowledge management start?
1: Uh, Canberra probably started in the 90s. I mean, I, I was working in decision support systems in the 80s, which I think was one of the pre- predecessors. So, I mean, one of the strengths of KM is it came from four or five completely different strands rather than a single author and a single book. And decision support was one of
0: those. That is interesting. So it's like the ultimate interdisciplinary uh,
1: field, basically. Well, yes and no. I mean, you had the intellectual capital measurement stuff with Leif and Stewart and people like that. You had Gordon Petrush on intellectual property. You have Bob Buckman on community and collaboration. You had Larry, myself, and others on data and information. So there were a whole bunch of people working in different fields. And then after the NARCA book got published, it got called knowledge management. I, I never thought it was a good name, but that's how it started.
0: <laughs> um, and it kind of evolved a little bit out of information management. Is that
1: accurate? Uh, no, it largely became information management. I think that that was one of the problems. Yeah. What is the so is originally, originally, information was subordinate um, to knowledge. It was a way in which you could make better decisions. But they de factor because of the over-focus on codification and yep. written knowledge, it became information management, which is why it stopped being strategic and became part of an IT department.
0: <laughs> uh and that's essentially like the difference between information and knowledge is essentially context and relevance. Is that accurate?
1: No, I don't, I never bought that one. I think the data information knowledge wisdom pyramid was one of the worst things that happened to knowledge management. Um, if you, if you share it, if you share the same knowledge base, then data is information. If you don't share the same knowledge base and data stays data. So I see knowledge as the way in which you construct information from data. Interesting. So uh, if I'm an accountant, you're an accountant. We know what we're dealing with. Yeah. That is very interesting. Um, so I, I think the other,
0: what you're also trying to do is the do. Sorry, go on. Uh, so uh,
1: where does wisdom fit into your schema? Um, in, in a bracket with other pretentious things talked about consultants where well, they shouldn't be better. Uh, awesome. Um, okay. So, uh, and,
0: what is relevant knowledge? How can I understand what the relevant knowledge is
1: versus the irrelevant? Well, you don't, and I mean sometimes you're actually trying to something I call messy coherence. You're you're actually trying to mix things up a bit in the hope of novel discovery. Nice, um, nice. and that that's actually quite frequent. I mean, we do work, for example, on what's called exaptive innovation, where we're literally taking different information assets, moving to a high level of abstraction using symbols or semiotics then mashing the databases together so we get seemingly random associations but that can produce radically new forms of innovation so i don't think there's a single answer to this i think yeah, knowledge is needed in different ways in different contexts so is information interesting and how has the field evolved as you've been working in it it hasn't it's gone through a series of cycles so it's like it it gets adopted and then everybody makes the same mistake yet again and going for communities of practice and taxonomies and information management systems. Um, That adds very little value to the organization. So the minute there's a downturn, yeah, they get closed down as a unit, but the need to manage knowledge sort of persists. So then it all starts up again. I've been through five of these cycles, I think, over the last 30, 40 years. And it's, it's a, it's a lack of focus. It's, um, People need to focus on small projects which impact on middle management rather than grand visions and and conversations. And then then you can create something sustainable. Hmm.
0: That's really interesting. and It ties into a lot of the things I talk about on the show. Uh, What I'm understanding from you is that I have this vision of things progressing naturally uh you know progressing towards a kind of teleological goal uh, and and what you're saying at least within knowledge management is that it's a cycle everything happens over and over again um there is no sort of teleological goal uh and everything's a mess all the time
1: um i think there are there are a series every time they start up there are idealistic teleological goals which doom them to failure um and therefore you get the cycle i mean there's no need for that to be the case but that's how it's actually happened and really you know knowledge management has been remarkably persistent most other fads sort of come and go and never come back again at least km keeps coming back again i think it's getting a bit zombie like but at least it's attempting to get there so starting into this role what can i understand
0: in order to not repeat the mistakes uh that have been made in these cycles
1: Okay, start, I mean, there's, we have a very simple knowledge mapping process that has been developed and refined over 30 years, yeah? Mm. So the first thing you do is go and find out what's keeping middle and senior uh, middle management awake at night. It's forget the executives, mm. yeah? The people with the real needs and the real power are the middle managers, and if they don't like you, you're dead anyway. You, you, you do not want to be a CEO pet project. You're doomed if you're in that role. So you want to identify those you then need to map what it is the organization currently knows and we do that for example by decision journaling we use a mnemonic called ashton which stands for artifact skills heuristics experience and natural talent which is a way of getting people to think about knowledge divergently and then we effectively map current knowledge against things that keep people awake at night and generate projects from that and some of those projects may be to create new knowledge some need to be kill stuff off but you end up with 40 or 50 micro projects, which have real measurable effect. Mm-hmm. And then you start to build the program. And if you get repeating patterns, that's when you select the technologies. You don't start with the technologies, you start with the needs. Yeah, interesting, taking it back to first principles. Uh, and I imagine that the next
0: cycle, what what, where are we on the cycle in terms of knowledge management, you having seen it a few times? Uh...
1: Well, I've been speaking at KM World, I've keynoted at KM World every year it's run from when it first started in California, well over 20 odd years ago. Um, I think where we are at the moment is we're in the early stage of the hype cycle again. So it's possible to do things properly. right? Mm -hmm. I think the other plus point at the moment is what COVID did. And Mm -hmm. this is most of our work is in complexity theory, Mm -hmm. you know, applied to fields. It's made people realise there are there are inherent unknowabilities within systems. So it's not a matter of deciding what you know and how to apply it. It's about creating resilience in the organisation, so that knowledge can be discovered and flow quickly. Um, and that requires us to store it to fine grained granularity. It also requires, for example, one of the single effective methods you can use is to build informal networks across the organisation. That's about eighty percent of what knowledge management is about. Mm. You're creating the pipes through which knowledge will flow. All of that, by the way, is outlined in the European Union Field Guide on Complexity Management, which I wrote. Hmm. And it basically focuses on how do you create a resilient organisation able to handle as yet unforecastable circumstances in the real time? Hmm. And knowledge is key to that if you do it properly. It also, by the way, makes you as a knowledge manager strategic to the company rather than just an operational part of the IT department. Hmm, hmm, hmm.
0: Uh, And does getting involved with tactics uh, make it harder to deal in
1: strategy? Now, um, the latest work we're doing, which is based on constructive theory and theoretical physics, is to combine grand strategy and tactics into single frameworks. Hmm. You can't afford a linear process anymore between strategy and implementation. You have to have constant feedback between the two.
0: Hmm. Uh, so that means as a knowledge manager, I will be getting involved in tactics uh, and and tying that into strategy uh, related to the overall kind of
1: knowledge within the organization. Yeah, you're, you're still thinking a bit linear in that terms. What 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 you're really doing is, is you're identifying ways in which you can change what's called a dispositional state of the system. If you want to put it really simply, you're trying to make the energy cost of virtue lower than the energy cost of sin wow um and if you if you do that you can you're basically the representations of that work this is called astro mapping um at a strategy level you've got everything but at a tactical level you've got parts of it but all from the same source data and so you'll be engaging in many different ways within the system and it will align through those engagements hmm and
0: uh, I'd be very interested to hear your take on remote work, particularly after COVID, seeing as everybody had to start doing remote work. Um, what, How has knowledge management
1: changed with uh, remote work? Um, I don't think we really know, to be honest, because COVID sort of triggered some of the, the current hype cycle. Um, I think there's a couple of things that we can bring to bear on this from the sort of naturalizing tradition in knowledge management. First of all, Virtual communication is extremely effective for all sorts of things, but it doesn't handle rich conversational things like trust. So for example, pheromones and scent is an important part of humans mm-hmm. making trust mm-hmm. decisions. So it, I think it's more about hybrid and deciding what you do where and when. I think what virtual is doing is allowing faster um, connections, but it's also destroying richness. I mean, I spent a day in our bristol office going through the new work we're doing on hexes which is breaking down all methods in knowledge management into smaller parts Mm. from multiple vendors and allowing them to combine and recombine in different ways now that was me working with a designer for a day that would have probably taken us about five weeks and we've got a lot of miscommunication if we had done it through zoom so i think part of the role of knowledge management is to work out the nature of the knowledge transfer, the degree of trust involved, the degree of ambiguity, and help people select what type of systems or what type of approach should take place.
0: And how much of that is training and development in terms of you going into organizations and training
1: people how to do that? Um, We do a fair amount of training on leadership and things like that, right? Although on leadership these days, we're we're more focused on training people to make um, decisions that keep options open. And we're also these days moving on distributed decision making, which means we're creating processes that don't depend on training. So I think the sort of competence based training stuff is not as important as it was. Mm. But experiential training, particularly games and other environments in which people discover things through interaction and get feedback. That's becoming more important. Mm. Um, Stop ambiguity. Okay.
0: Where do you place this in terms of the historical artifacts of knowledge management? I'll give a little spiel. I've been reading these books about the Dark Ages and how knowledge sort of disappeared for civilizations. Uh, And so you have the Roman Empire, which essentially fell and we lost access to a lot of the knowledge, although I think the fall of Rome was greatly exaggerated. Um how do you tie into what knowledge management is doing today versus the kind of arc of history itself?
1: Um well I mean part of the problem we got there is a sort of North Atlantic um largely Protestant capitalist myth that everything goes progressively, you know, with a series of enlightenments, yeah. I mean, the reality is the Dark Ages were far from dark. I mean, the growth of monastic learning, monastic knowledge and writing exceeded anything we've seen in the Roman times. And of course, the Arabs maintained all of the um, Greek literature during that period. It was a sort of partly European problem. So I think it's a lot less messy. I think think stories of linear progression are a mistake. Um, If you look at, say, the invention of the printing press, it wasn't the printing press which made a big difference. It was the stealing of the secret of rag-based paper from the Chinese, which made it economical to produce books. Um, The Internet theoretically should have done the same thing, but actually it hasn't because it's created too much information. And it's clustered people into extremist groups rather than allowing genuinely interesting flow between ideas. So I think every every age and every context has to understand things in a slightly different way, and it's not that we're always making progress. We're not. Yep. And so that thing you mentioned about too much information in the
0: internet—that seems like it's directly relevant to the uh, organization level. How do you cut through
1: that problem of too much information? You fo- you focus on connecting people, not on storing information. Okay. Connecting people. People are extremely 19. effective at connecting with other people and showing what's relevant. And if you ask me a question, I mean I've been working in the field, you know, I'm 70 next year. I've been working in the field off and on since I was 25. All right. You ask me a question, I'll remember things which are relevant to your question. Ask me to put it on a database, so I'll be here for the rest of my life. Yeah. Okay. That's the exact problem
0: that we're facing in the organization as well. We've got the explicit knowledge, which can be written down, but most of the knowledge is implicit knowledge inside of people's head. I'm sure I'm on the
1: kind of textbook stuff because that's where I got oh, it. Their body. T- to just remember human knowledge is stored in social networks and the mm-hmm. body as well as the brain. Um, so how do you connect people?
0: in ways inside a remote organization, you mentioned games and such, that gets this
1: information out in a way that's contextually re- relevant? Now we, we use a method, for example, called entangled trios. So we put people together and then we get people to voluntarily form groups, but they can only form groups between specific roles with tasks. And that, that has a utility in its own right. It actually achieves better decision-making or achieves goals or problems. But if you run that every three months and you flex the teams, within 18 months, everybody is within three phone calls of everybody else. Yes, okay now, once you've got that level of network density, you don't need to worry about knowledge flow anymore. It will just happen. Yeah, interesting. Okay, based on the questions
0: I've been asking, what are some other ways that I'm getting this whole thing wrong?
1: Oh, I, I didn't say you're getting it wrong, or if you are, you're getting it wrong the way most other people do. I think the secret is not to take an information centric approach to the problem. Information is part of it, but it's not the whole. Yeah. So I mean, I famously created a series of rules for knowledge management, one is knowledge is only ever volunteered. It's not conscripted. Uh, you can't make people surrender what they know. Um, we only know what we know when we need to know it. So knowledge is contextually triggered in humans. It won't be remembered without context. And then we always know more than we can say. We always say more than we can write down. Mm -hmm. So the traditional knowledge management databases have huge value, but you also need to put narrative databases on top of those because they carry more ambiguity and that's called necessary ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And you need to build the informal networks and the experience, which is the more purely tacit side. Mm -hmm. Everybody forgets the role of narrative in connecting tacit with explicit knowledge. Mm -hmm. So what is the role of narrative? Oh, it's, if you look look at the Bible stories, people still get relevance from them today because they don't lay out things in too much detail. They give broad principles and guidance and learning, Yeah, And often they're paradoxical, you know, think about rendering to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. So a lot of the time narrative asks you questions which make you think differently. So, for example, we will, you know, we'll do lessons learning, not lessons learned. So we'll use a Gemba version of our software to continuously capture people's experience on projects which they self-signify into a quantitative framework at the time of capture. And we won't do any more structuring on that. It will be held at that level of ambiguity so it can be recalled quickly. Or it will be made into what's called narrative enhanced doctrine, Either stories will be linked into HTML fields on text fields and so on. So it, it's... It's all a matter of just accepting a little bit more mess than most people in KM are prepared to live with. Yeah, good, because I accept or I excel at uh,
0: mess and you nailed it. The, the company uh, that I'm joining is really focused on trying to get that explicit knowledge out. Uh, they're very good at at the at getting people together as well, particularly in the remote fashion. Um, but it is definitely very much a, a sort of, uh, they look at it from an explicit knowledge standpoint yeah
1: and that was that was the original i mean remember the you know the famous Hewlett look quote which is kind of like you know 90 of knowledge walks out of the door every night well yeah. the answer to that is yeah. to make sure it walks back through the door the next day rather than codify it it's a lot cheaper <laughs> yes uh okay so we've talked uh more of the higher level
0: First principles and i'd love to talk about the technology angle because it does seem like we have one tool that's starting to get better and better at this contextual knowledge in terms of artificial intelligence what do you think about artificial intelligence in the way that it might be able to help or hurt uh, knowledge management
1: first of all it's not artificial intelligence it's machine (laughs) learning and it's only as good as its training data sets yep so at the moment the danger with knowledge management use of this is actually not that the computers will exceed humans in intelligence, but the human being at the moment, we're planning to meet them halfway. So we're kind of like dumbing down how we know things so that we're trying to compete with AI when AI is actually better at that. Mm. So I actually think it's quite dangerous. I think using it with the right source data to you know draft a report a bit, a bit quicker is kind of like sort of OK but I'm not sure that's valuable because you then don't learn how to write the report in the first place. But if all you want is to summarize on a large language learning set what's already in the field and two years old, that isn't really what knowledge management is about, surely. Mm. Mm. And this brings
0: in the other angle, which is that just in the same way humans are really good at BSing themselves, uh, these large language models are also very good at hallucinating and bsing everybody involved and sounding very confident in it
1: yeah the difference is human beings hallucinate but they check the hallucination at the micro level continuously that's how we make decisions and i think the other thing to remember is that human beings are evolved to make decisions in extended family groups and clans not as individuals and we're actually very good in group-based decision we're really poor in individual decision and we also think abductively not inductively all machine learning is inductive huh. whereas humans evolved to be abductive and you know the body and the brain and social interactions are really a part of that and you can't replicate that in ai
0: yeah interesting so it's essentially the establishing roles and maintaining our own role whereas we can sort of offload some of the inductive reasoning uh, to machine learning uh, but then really focus on... Well, what- feed
1: it better training data sets. I mean, I think, I mean, I, would, I was arguing this with Poindex and others 20 years ago in DC and basically saying you, you're just not paying attention to training data sets. Hmm. You're assuming whatever data you've got, you can train the algorithms on. So if all your previously employed managers are male, guess what the AI recommends? Hmm. So creating balanced training data sets is far more important than the algorithms and very few people pay attention to that. <clears throat>
0: Okay. Interesting. So data sets, information, knowledge, wisdom, that whole thing is a ridiculous oversimplification. Um, I'd love to go into a little bit of a history in terms of IBM. You were were the, how did you get the role of knowledge management at IBM? Oh, so um,
1: I was working for a company called Data Sciences. And um, I built a business unit around decision support systems and then moved into a strategy role for the company. And then IBM bought us. and It was kind of like a three day process from first contact to sale. It was quite scary, really. <laughs> and I got given a free floating role to sort of go and do interesting things. And we'll pay you a salary. I was designated a creative, which is quite good to be, to be honest. And kind of like out of a whole body of work on there, we formed the Institute for Knowledge Management, which is Larry Prusat, myself, Eric, and others, yeah? Yeah. And we were actually a research institute in IBM. We were in constant warfare with the IBM chief knowledge officer who just didn't get it. Huh. Um, so we actually were a membership-based body. IBM were members. Lots of other companies were members. And we basically advanced the field. Interesting. And how did and you... Then we go for it so i was gonna say when then that got merged into ibm's institute for business value larry and i kind of like left Mm -hmm. um larry retired and went on elsewhere i created the ibm center for complexity studies which Mm -hmm. was by that time where my intention had gone Mm -hmm.
0: how did ibm value knowledge management either at the beginning or when you started that center for complexity studies
1: oh it, it it valued our thought leadership i think ibm were a Larry and I were about 80% of IBM's measurable thought leadership for a few years, Mm. but not in a way they wanted, right? Um, I think IBM it was very information-centric, right? And it didn't understand the power dynamics of exchange. So the main reason that people retain retain knowledge is not actual fear, it's not actually power, it's fear of abuse. Mm -hmm. So I still remember I put something into the IBM KM system just after I joined. I was naive in those days. And one of the curators said that it was sort of reasonably good and, you know, he'd work on it, but he'd want to share ownership. And I just said, no way, and reworked it, got it published. It's now one of the top 10 cited papers of all time in KM. And I wasn't prepared to let him play the power dynamics and play credit. So there was a huge amount of power involved in what was accepted and what wasn't. Both big, both big organizations like that, the politics, you have to understand the politics um, rather than the sort of rationality of what should happen. Yeah, which is an interesting question in general
0: about rationality. Uh, there's a lot of people who call themselves rationalists. Uh, and then there's sort of like it, it's kind of like the same BSing, hallucinating type of thing, because the world is often fundamentally unknowable and humans probably evolved under conditions that
1: influenced them uh to go for it so for example art comes before language in human evolution Mm. and we know the evolutionary advantage of that so having everything in written form yeah it's maybe 10 percent of what people know yeah and that's one of the reasons knowledge management is goes through these cycles of failure it's only part it's it can only codify a part of the knowledge and it doesn't recognize the value of things which can't be codified or can only be codified in narrative or semiotic form and yeah narrative and semiotics uh some of the lost arts in km hmm. uh, so what is semiotics oh um symbols and signs
0: and how if you look at a
1: map a map is a really powerful information beast all right i mean if you come to the uk we're the most mapped country in the world hmm. So if on the map there's a, a square with a cross on top of it, it's a church with a tower. If there's a circle with a cross on top of it, it's a church with a steeple. So the semi gives you very fast recognition of complex issues.
0: This reminds me of Mexico City's subway system, uh, uh, one of the best subway systems in the world, but also a huge perma- amount of the people who take it uh, don't aren't literate. And so they basically mapped the whole thing out in terms of symbols rather than just
1: uh, letters and such. But equally, if you look at military maps, they work in symbols because we can absorb complex information in symbols. And we do things, for example, on commander's intent where we'll make narrative reference. So in four words, I can convey what it would otherwise take you know, three or four pages to explain. So there's there's an awful lot of sophistication available to companies, but they tend not to use it in the way that they should. And it's and it's somewhat because of this idea that humans consider themselves to be rational when they're not. Well, it, there's a lot of problem with Enlightenment models. So we, we tend to talk about we need Renaissance, not Enlightenment. Interesting. And if you go to B- Biko, who's you know one of the philosophers of the Enlightenment, he basically says, you know, this new stuff is great, guys. But why are you throwing out the value of the old at the same time?
0: Yes, which is the fundamental um, problem of the of that Enlightenment thinking. It's just like out with the bathwater, yeah. in with the new.
1: Yeah, and yeah, we, we're doing work on uh, with indigenous people in Australia, and there's things they've known for generations, which we've forgotten in the West, which are actually valuable in the current day. So people need to be a little bit more Catholic with a small C about sources and use of knowledge and the form of knowledge. Um, human beings are actually really good knowledge processors in groups, yeah and we handle it all the time we handle ambiguity but computers aren't and the trouble is computer models of decision making and computer models of information processing have dominated KM practice interesting
0: and that's going to probably continue because as you said you start with the knowledge then you go to the tools and now we're... Yeah, it's coming down
1: i mean elite schools in america and now actually the good ones are advertising that they won't let the kids near technology until they graduate mm-hmm because that's going to give them an intellectual advantage. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Which is so interesting
0: because the human beings are tool users, tool makers. The reason we've taken over the planet is because of our ability to uh, adapt to our environment using these different tools. Now we've got tools that are so powerful uh, that the actual use of them is dumbing down, but that, that actually happened with writing. It seems as well. It seems that our memories were extremely powerful before the, invention of the written word and then our memories stopped being used in the same way once we
1: started to write the oral tradition is interesting all right so writing things down made things a bit static but equally um, if a doctor writes notes they pay more attention to the patient than they type into a computer so it doesn't mean you don't want computer records all right so I i think the secret on this is to sort of look at different things in different contexts and decide how you deal with it i mean I get really fed up with people don't have the ability to speak for more than five minutes without slides. I mean, I grew up in a debating tradition. We had to speak for two or three hours without notes, without warning on the subject. Mm. And, yeah, that's we can still develop those skills in people and we should be developing those skills, not to get rid of writing, but to know when to use writing and when not, etc. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so given all this stuff we just talked about, how symbols are much quicker, there's so much that is not capable of understanding from the rational side of our understanding, how do you actually measure knowledge? Not an
1: enlightenment model of rationality. I think a scientific model of rationality I would I would argue for, but not an enlightenment model of rationality. So what is the scientific model of rationality? Oh, so there's there's things we know about the way humans may make decisions, right? So we know inattentional blindness is part of what it is to be human unless you're autistic. So that means we can build, sorry, that's that you don't see what you don't expect to see. So therefore, we need to build systems which force diversity into scanning. So you see things you didn't expect to see. So there's a whole body of highly rational, natural science we can use to inform practice. Very interesting. And then how do we actually measure knowledge management
0: and its effect, given all of these difficult things to measure?
1: Well, there's there's two fundamental types of measure. The one everybody's familiar with is outcome or output type measures, mm. and that's fine if you've got an ordered system with a high level of constraints, so you've got predictability. Um, unfortunately, if you've got a complex system, you don't have either of those, so you end up the outcome produces produces a perverse incentive. Mm. Yeah. So we had that in IBM. It was kind of like, you know, you had to put so many things on the knowledge management system. So I just used to write nonsense, to be honest, and put it up and nobody knew the subject as well as I did. So I got my bonuses. Yeah, Nobody could use this stuff. Um, yeah, so the other measure which we've been developing a lot lately is called the vector measure, which measures direction and speed of travel for intensity of effort. And that focuses on where are you going from where you are, not where do you want to be. And that opens more possibilities for novelty. So I'm a great believer in measurement and a great believer in KPIs, but they have to be appropriate to the context and outcome-based targets and balanced scorecards and things like that really don't apply in complexity. In fact, they produce counter counter impact. Interesting. And that's going to be
0: a big part of my job is to understand these KPIs uh, for the knowledge man- management specifically.
1: Uh, what are some things that I should be aware of when I'm setting these KPIs? Well, that get get involved in kind of like we need to move this in this direction and we'll get it here, then we'll look again, yeah? Yeah. That's, that's called the adjacent possible, or if you really want to get fancy, the frozen two strategy, right? Um, avoid at all costs, sort of trying to define what a successful KM programme would look like because you'll end up with platitudes and nobody will believe it anyway. <laughs> Do what i said at the start which is you know identify 20 or 30 micro problems which are keeping people awake at night and create micro yep. projects to deal with those and tick them off yep that's that's credible that's measurable
0: yep okay
1: there it is okay
0: um and it really is just getting to know people getting to know their problems what's
1: keeping them up at night well yeah it's more putting those into a matrix with knowledge assets and then sort of mixing the two it's less about you as an expert understanding them um when we did a lot of our early knowledge management we actually created methods and we'd facilitate in denmark so we could speak in english but they could speak in danish so it wasn't a matter of the knowledge management function understanding it it was creating processes by which people could understand and spread things for themselves and that scales and that's sustainable yeah interesting it's just
0: crazy how everything just comes back to really, really simple things. As long as you have the emotional bandwidth to pry into them,
1: Um yeah, The energy cost of doing things on a commonsensical way is a lot less than the energy cost of doing things in the corporate way. I keep saying we all know how to do this in our families, then we forget it when we walk through the door of the office. <laughs> Why is that? Why does
0: that happen when we that
1: we forget when we walk into the office? Oh, right because you've had. I mean, partly because what happened in the eighties. I used to teach leadership with Peter Drucker, right? And um, one of the things we agreed on is that scientific management and complexity thinking had a lot in common because they both respected human judgment. Whereas systems thinking, in terms of the hard forms of systems thinking, which dominated from the 80s to the current day, Mm. were based on engineering and computing metaphors. Yeah, and effectively it tried to remove human judgment from the process, and that's problematic. So we've had 20 or 30 years of using the wrong cognitive models and so it's not surprising there's an issue yes and it's it
0: go, goes back to that
1: treating the human brain
0: as a as a computer and extending that which it isn't else. i
1: mean it isn't this is modern post-cartesian concepts and if your brain dies you don't have consciousness but consciousness is a distributed function of the brain the body and its social environment mm-hmm. um and that's what most people get wrong because they assume the brain is a computer and everything has to be initiated in the brain Mm. human bodies and the bodies of stories, which we learn and understand in which we flow called an assemblage. If you want to go back to Deleuze, Mm. that's as much a part of our cognitive function as our brain. Which
0: goes into the kind of a philosophical question, which a lot of people call panpsychism,
1: where oh no, 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 don't go down there. That's not <laughs> philosophy. I've got a degree in philosophy. That's Souders. all right uh, Tell me more. Um, so consciousness is a distributed function, but without the brain, it wouldn't exist. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the idea that there's consciousness in, I mean, and it's like people they talk about quantum entanglement and they forget that only works for quanta. It doesn't work when the atoms start to assemble because then you've got emergent, you've got quantum layering, you've got emergent properties, which aren't from the parts themselves. All right. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of new age nonsensical hype talked in this area.
0: Well, and that, and that's what I was going to say was that, is that that panpsychism there's a, a mistake there because, because consciousness is distributed among many different brains networked together in ways that, i
1: don't think we understand yet but you might have some good insight yeah, you're still using the wrong metaphor it's it's i mean we're not sure brains are networked but we are pretty sure that the brain is networked with the body and its social environment in narrative form interesting so you know this sort of we're all magically connected with each other well yeah i mean you know neocortex processing and the under twos is carried out by their care, and we don't know how yet we know that culture is inherited um so the sim- level of symbolism in your speech will affect the intelligence of your grandchildren so we, we're gradually getting to know a lot more of this but the idea that we're suddenly magically connected i mean you'd be getting into morphic resonance next god help us and all that sort of sheldrake nonsense
0: uh interesting okay how is culture inherited can you talk more about that
1: oh this is called epigenetics okay. I'll give you a simple example. It's the famous one, right? So you take mice, um, you, feed them their, you feed them their favorite food, which has a very strong smell. You get them habituated, and every time they have the food, you give them electric shocks till they're scared shitless and run every time they smell it. Yeah. You know? mm. Then you leave them alone. You leave their children alone, and then their grandchildren come along, and you show the smell, and they run like hell. And that. Um, I mean, if you want to read Eva Jablonka's book on on four types of of acceptor of um, epigenetics, is fascinating, right? So you know you've got you know DNA. So you if you've got the gene, you're when you've got the gene which predisposes you to breast cancer, it doesn't mean it will be activated or not. Whether you eat depends, on whether that's activated. Mm so the inheritance of culture and behavior i mean darwin said there must be it must be the case he just didn't know the mechanism we now do know the mechanism it's, it's down to the rna rna mm. right in terms of the way it works so the, the world of biology and physics and chemistry at the moment is really interested in what's developing out of it mm-hmm. um but it's not supporting you know nonsense like panpsychism and morphic resonance
0: ah um can you, I lost you in the quantum mechanic parts because from my understanding, the quant, we have the quantum effect where the observer affects the
1: observed that depending on the observer, the the observed can be either a particle or a wave. Yeah, that's that's what interpretation of Heisenberg. I mean, the other thing is just to think that, you know, quanta as particles exist and don't exist and are activated or not by the wave function. I mean, it's very complex. It's complex at that level, right? Unless you studied it. But human beings are never working at a quantum level. We're always working at the level of, you know, way up in the system with multiple interactions and stabilities and qualities present in the combinations which aren't there in the individual components. So the minute somebody talks about quantum in respect of human systems, they obviously don't understand quantum. Uh, because what you're saying is
0: essentially there's the quantum level at very, very small, small, small level. But the humans, the way that
1: we yeah, actually so don't, don't exist, if you take Superconductors is a good example, All right, So from the basis of prediction on electron behavior, you basically would say there's no such thing as superconductors. But then when you start to mass electrons together in huge clumps, all of a sudden they get properties which aren't present in the individuals. Mm. Right. Mm. So you, you can't you can't interpret the higher level from the lower level yeah yeah and we're always dealing with multiple coupled systems so it's, it's different uh
0: what do you know about qu- quantum biology and like ways that uh there's some bird or something that they isolated some way that it actually uses quantum mechanics in order to communicate or something like that do you think that's uh
1: I, you'd have to give me a reference on that all right i mean there's yep. there's all sorts of forms of communication we don't fully understand yet mm. Yeah? Mm. um and I think, I mean, we've been doing a lot of our work is to reduce things to as smaller granularity as possible. Because the smaller the granularity, the easier it is to combine and recombine them in novel ways. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, quantum computing is interesting, but again, that re- requires superconductors to actually work. Mm. Now, if there's room temperature superconductors and birds have evolved that, that would be interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, we need to be very cautious on this stuff. And and people, most people lack a basic scientific understanding. So they find it very difficult to validate data or not. And the internet doesn't help that. Which is funny, because
0: going back to the conversation about organizations, cultures, all this thing, an organization is made up of a lot of people who will come together with a lot of different beliefs about how the way that the world works.
1: Yeah, but when they come together, the properties of the whole are different from the individual parts. Interesting. It's why, for example, IBM had a highly dominant culture, even though it had high churn. Wait, can you explain that? Oh, so you basically when people joined IBM, you know, it was, it was survival. You started to retell your personal story in terms of the structure of the corporate stories. <laughs> so even though you had high churn, that the culture started to dominate. I mean we use stories as a measure of culture. Interesting. So now
0: given all this stuff we've been talking about culture, let's talk about how different cultures clash in organizations the one i'm working at is just like totally worldwide uh very very different cultures all working together um and then there's like a sort of like monolith culture that exists from that interaction that in some ways is being reflected by the internet and the expansion of the internet and the kind of a monoculture as well what do you what do you have to say about getting different people from different cultures
1: together to work together it depends on the context i mean i was strategy director for an anglo-dutch company yeah yeah and you had to explain to the dutch that if the english said they did something they would do something by friday they meant you know monday three weeks hence if you <laughs> nagged them and then you had to explain to the english that the dutch didn't sound enthusiastic because if they said they'd do something they meant they would actually do it and yeah there are i mean that's a bit stereotypical but that's still the case all right and you have to prepare people from britain we we our culture like the chinese is all about saving face and not being directly critical of people, uh, whereas the Dutch is uh, straight in your face. So I think cultural diversity is important in how you use it. I think people who speak international English are often in a better place than those of us who speak colloquial English uh, because their communication can be better. But we, we talk about what's called um, yeah messy coherence or, if you want it, coherent heterogeneity. So you need to have lots of differences, but in certain contexts those differences need to disappear. But the last thing you want is a common culture. If you had a common culture across the organization, it would be an entry to be death and about to die. Interesting.
0: What does that say about the, the internet and the spreading of a certain common culture? Do you buy that the internet is spreading common culture or is it? No, it's
1: spreading yeah. clusters of clusters of prejudice, not a common culture. Mm. Um, Where, Whereas uh, with yeah. like, you you will only see things that you expect to see and will reinforce your belief is it clusters you for advertisers <laughs> um uh clusters of prejudice uh i mean the other thing you've got what actually happens in the internet is you get what's called an assembly structure or a stranger attractor. Mm. so like narrative attracts like narrative and then it becomes it gets physical reality and it's impossible to escape from it mm
0: yes the attractor that is a very interesting thing because we is there any way that humans can actually prevent the unnecessary spreading
1: or unnecessary influence by those attractors or are we doomed um we've done work for the eu on this but it's not about creating better algorithms yeah yeah um yeah this way sorry somebody's just delivered. No, yeah so it's not about um better algorithms tell you what's true or false. We're focusing instead on defining the input into the system so you validate the input.
0: And um maybe not to diverge the conversation too much in the last uh in the in the last five minutes we got, but what role does like faith or religion play in this whole thing?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm a Catholic, right? Um I'm a convert as well, so I'm dangerous. The um I think religion is fundamental to what human beings are. And it's quite interesting. If you look at somebody like Richard Dawkins, as Mary Mitchell, who said he was also an agnostic, he's creating a new religion called scientism, and he's the first prophet. Uh. In fact, his website has testimonies to people who became atheists after they heard him <laughs> preach. Rather ironic. Right? right? So I think this comes from abstraction. Um, because human beings evolved to think in abstractions, which also makes us, by the way, prone to conspiracy theories, um there's a heavy religious element within that you really can't avoid it if you're going to be human in fact a lot of evolutionary biologists say it's fundamental to what we are that doesn't mean but the trouble is whenever you talk with somebody on america they've got this terribly naive version of religion which is associated with people who believe in the rapture and the bible but fundamentalists evangelical reality is religion is far more sophisticated than that i don't recognize those guys
0: well, and that's the interesting thing, particularly given where we are now, is the sort of, um, uh, I, from my understanding over my readings the last couple of months, a lot of that evangelicalism that uh, goes through the United States is a sort of a conversion method, uh, just like you said, the Richard Dawkins type of thing. It's kind of like, the world is ending, here, come join my church,
1: and then let's forget yeah, the, that. the that's that's... are doing the same thing.
0: Oh, wait, how are they doing
1: that? Oh, they're creating, they're creating a crisis of meaning, which only ah. a white liberal intellectual on the East Coast could have a crisis of meaning. Most of us have different sorts of crises. And they're designing religions based on idealistic form. I mean, meta metamodernism is meant to be about, you know, ironic sincerity, and it's the exact opposite. Um, so I think there's a problem. But, you know, when things start to go wrong with humanity, we start to invent extremist religions, and, you know, the current age is no exception.
0: And do you think that we're actually in an extreme age or is it mostly a hallucination?
1: No, we're in a polycrisis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the, the reality is real. I mean, you're talking about sizable tracts of, say, Indonesia, which will be uninhabitable for three or four hours a day within 20 years' time. Mm. And those societies aren't ready for that yet. Mm. Yeah, uh, you, you've seen the effect of global warming in the States already and people just are still refusing to accept it. Uh. And then...
0: What, what is the role of knowledge management within those crisis? Mm-hmm. What is the role of knowledge management within? Um,
1: acceptation. Um, in a crisis, again, in the EU field guide, which is worth reading, in a real crisis, the only thing you can actually do is to repurpose existing capability fast. Yep. yep. Yeah. So one of the big projects I'm trying to get people engaged in at the moment, I mean, our chief scientist has worked out the science of how to refreeze the poles. It's now an engineering problem. If enough engineers focused on that, we give ourselves another 20 or 30 years breathing space. And I mean, literally breathing space. And I think that's the trouble. People try and... The enlightenment myth has got people to try and solve big problems by, you know, sort of massive top-down solutions rather than actually change the dispositional state so that more sustainable, resilient solutions emerge.
0: Yeah, interesting. so the last couple of minutes, what is that relationship between because from that enlightenment myth, we get the understanding that the only way that we can solve these problems is by top down. Um, like China. China's the
1: best way because they can they're they're able to do these top down things. China doesn't have to worry about, you know, getting elected every three to four years, which is a Western problem. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but equally they actually have quite a distributed decision making process. It's not as top down as you think, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you know, we, we need to find ways, and this is a lot of our work on global warming and elsewhere. You need to try try to find ways where people are making they understand the need to make micro sacrifices in their local environment. And once you get to a certain critical mass of that. It's acceptable for politicians to start to make the macro sacrifices we're going to need to make at a nation state level. And it's going to be a close front thing, whether we get the two together or not.
0: Interesting. The micro sacrifices are essentially um, uh, ways in which people understand that certain things need to change uh, at a local
1: level. And they uh, change them. And then that gradually changes the underlying what's called substrate you know, yeah, or the ideation culture. And then that impacts on what things they will vote for or, or not vote for. Mm. but until you've changed the ideation culture the lowest energy gradient is to focus on what will get you elected in four years time and if that's denying climate change that's what you do if you want to blame immigrants for it that's what you do if you want to create a conspiracy theory to say you were really elected the last time you failed as president you do that all right it's and it's not helpful well thank
0: you so much for coming on the show how can people find out more about uh, what you're working on and what you do
1: um the, i write most of the stuff in the blog which is on our website so the cognitive edge blog is the main source um and i'll give you the link now to the eu field guide because that that contains a huge body of material on this yeah Great. and that's Nash. a government publication
0: and um could, could you maybe spell out the eva book on uh eva javonknik on epigenetics
1: oh jablonka jablonka yeah um it's for something rather right? hang on a minute i've got it on there behind me somewhere um unless my daughter's borrowed it epigenetic
0: inheritance and evolution yeah that's it yeah
1: um it's got a four in the title sorry i'm dyslexic so i have a bad memory on things like this no worries yeah cool no i can't can't immediately see it in the bookshelf there somewhere
0: i think i got it awesome thank you so much dave
1: yeah okay
0: Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.